All right, folks, welcome to Colin Shots. I'm Seth Partnow of The Athletic and Stats Bomb and some other places. Uh, I'm joined today by a guest. We've, we've kind of had this on the calendar and moved it around for, would you say, about two and a half months? We were originally going to do this two months ago, two and a yeah, half months ago. Yeah, exactly. And then I think we... Beca- because of uh, uh, travel plans and, and getting married and... Uh, and living in the U.S. or living in Australia, things have happened. But I'm joined today by the uh, the head of analytics and innovation for the Adelaide Crows of the Austri- of the uh, is it is it the the AFL? Is that just the best way to call it? Um, uh, yeah, I think that's the easiest. The AFL. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, uh, Welcome on the show. Thank you for uh, thank you for 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 coming on. No, thank you for having me, Seth. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thankfully uh, we've been able to get it done. Yeah, I we we originally got introduced a couple of years ago. I want to say by by I think Sam Vecini, if that's if that's right. Um, yeah, I think it was when you were just leaving Milwaukee, um, and Sam put us in touch just to chat about different ideas um, across sports and um, things like that. And yeah, I really enjoyed those conversations, and that's probably why we've kept in touch since. So I hope you've enjoyed them too. Absolutely. Um, and the first time we talked, you that we were kind of talking about the differences between, um, you know, there's some obvious on-field differences between AFL and and basketball, but I want to kind of start with the single wildest difference that um, will I think blow Americans the mind of Americans is that the salary cap in the AFL has a salary cap. Correct. But, yeah. But not only is the cap different for every team. You don't know what the cap, what the cap or contracts are for the other teams. Do I have that right? <clears throat> Correct. So that yeah. So all contracts are hidden, and then the cap numbers are hidden as well. So the mechanism that you're talking about is if a team goes under the cap one year, then they can get that um, difference that they had between their cap and the salary cap added to their cap next year. But we've got no way of knowing which teams were under and. Um, how much they've got the following year. And the other difference that is also pretty crazy um, that we have is that we can't trade players without their consent. So it's it's a little bit of a, a almost a hybrid of, of sort of a basketball, like an NBA-style uh, CBA salary cap and kind of the greater sports world with sort of how they do transfers, which is, you know, a, a, like, a, like a transfer fee and then, a, and then an agreement. Uh, between the players on on uh, on terms, it's it's sort of halfway between those. Exactly, yeah. So there's no transfer fee. Exactly, it's just the trade that you've got to do with the other team in terms of draft picks or other players going the other way. But yeah, it's essentially like every player um, in the league has a no trade clause. So, w- with those two factors in place, how the hell do you build a team? Like I don't like I, it's like the, the the idea of doing any sort of of like it's hard enough in the NBA when you know exactly what everyone's contract is and exactly how much money every team has to do like scenarios even like three months out. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to plan anything in in sort of that fog of that envi- that that foggy environment. Yeah, it's uh, it's challenging, and I imagine it's quite different to the way that um, you guys do it in the NBA. So what we do plan is we have to obviously plan the number of draft picks that we would be bringing in. Like the draft's obviously a huge uh, way to bring in new talent and then identify targets, um, for, uh, you know, six months to 12 months out from 
our trade period. We can only trade within a small window of 10 days um, and then just work on those targets. Like there are a lot less transactions uh, during the AFL trade period than during the NBA or NFL season. Um, so I suppose we just have to be more selective and it places greater emphasis on the draft because you're not getting as much player movement. So because of that, you're um, really needing to hit those draft picks and um, they become the core of your team. Is there also any sort of like like youth or academy system where you can not just, you know, not just the draft picks, but your, I don't know, I mean, maybe the NBA equivalent would be the G League, but I'm also, again, thinking of the soccer equivalent of, you know, we have our, we have our under-17s and, and, and things of that nature. Or is it all just, well, these are some youth players and we drafted them and that's who we got. Yeah, so it's interesting. So the way um, the AFL works is, so there's 22 players play on any given week and you have a squad of, up to 44. So the other players on your squad, they'll play in your second tier team, which would be equivalent to the G League. Um, and then there's other players that you can bring into your second tier team that um, won't necessarily be drafted by you, but are just um, there as top up players. And then every year in the middle of the year, we're actually coming up to it um, next week, there's a mid season draft. So then we can draft players from our own second tier team that we haven't drafted previously, or our top up players or from other teams, um, second-tier teams. So there's that mechanism, but, yeah, not so much like a 10-day contract or a two-way contract. We don't have um, those mechanisms at the moment. There was talk about bringing in those type of things because of the COVID disruptions, but um, as of this stage, there hasn't been a need to do that. That is – this This all is, is, is absolutely wild to me. And, again, I'm, I'm just – like, what are the – like? To the extent you can, I don't uh, want to get you to give anything proprietary. Like, you know, we have stuff like you know trade machines and like cap tools and stuff like that. Um, what what kind of resources do you use to even do scenarios, or is it just like some of the ugliest Google Sheets ever created? <laughs> no, so we've um, I've been pretty lucky. Um, I've got a data scientist. Um, who's just an absolute gun. His name's Dean, and he's um, together, me, him, and um, with our list manager, who's like our GM um, and our national recruiting manager, we've been able to build out um, some pretty cool apps that we use. So for trade period, um, apps that value different different trades, so different picks and different players that are coming in that's really useful, um, really easy to plug in. We do that through our Shiny, And then uh, we've also got like some salary cap tools that, that we use as well, which um, which help our cap planning going forward. Like we like to make sure that we're on top of it. Um, so, and that's probably a testament to our list manager, who's uh, he comes from an agent background and he's really, really, um, yeah, studious with that and really thorough with that. So, we do have those tools and we use a lot of different data visualization things. So, we've been able to bring that in in the last four or five years, um, which makes everything a lot easier to communicate with um, with coaches and other stakeholders in the business. For sure. I, again, I, I, I find this all just the, the, the level of uncertainty is just, it's, it's making me queasy. Just think of trying to, to, to operate in, well, in that. Do you want me to throw, do you want me to throw something else at you? Oh, that, oh please, uh, please do. Might blow your mind. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting. So every um, club, so if you're a, if your dad played a certain number of games uh, for a team or you were born in a certain zone, um, you then that team uh, will get first access to you. 
And then what that means is in the draft itself, um, each draft pick the AFL has allocated a number of points to. So pick one is worth 3,000 and it's a descending scale like that. Um, so if one, so say for example, we have a player that's either their dad played uh, 200 games for our club or was born in our zone, uh, but another team might really like that player. So say a team bids on that player, they say, you know, it's pick 30 and, or pick 20 and we want to pick, um, Benuk Sun, for example, if I had played, I haven't played. Um, <laughs> what that means is then we have the option of um, matching that bid. So we've got to then forecast where we think that bid will come. And by matching that bid, we have to have the exact number of points uh, for the pick that they bid on. And there's a little bit of a discount, but we need to match that with further picks in the back of the draft. So we've got to do all that scenario planning. So what if the pick came from 1 to 10? What if it came from... 10 to 30, what if it doesn't come at all? How do we deal with that? So there's all that uncertainty and um, things that we've got to make sure that we're on top of before a draft. So it's like if we have kind of a, a, a legacy player, if you will, and, and, and all the, the team with the, with the ninth pick is going to take him when we have to trade up to 20, that's okay. We, we, we trade our first round pick and, and our sixth round pick, and that and that's that that that's what makes up the points difference. Sort of like the uh, yeah, if you do like so you the Jimmy Johnson trade, trade value chart, you, you don't actually yeah, trade. It. Oh my god, what? I, no, okay, it just disappears. <laughs> oh. picks, so say for example, so say for example, a bid comes with pick nine, and the equivalent picks are twenty and twenty five. Um, if we say yes, we want to match the bid, then our pick twenty and twenty five disappears, and the team that bid on the player at pick nine will then go out to pick 10. They'll pick after us. So is there any sort of gamesmanship where you're trying to, <laughs> uh, like a player you might not necessarily want, but you know you can bleed picks from from your rivals by forcing them to, or is that is that getting is that getting too cute? Well, the thing is, I think um, if teams did try to do that, uh, it probably comes back around uh, with players that, you might have that you're um, aligned with. So that's where teams try to be careful. And normally what teams do is they try to stick to their draft order. So, um, you know, if a player comes at pick nine that's attached to another team and you've got pick nine, um, you might just bid on it there. But I don't think teams will, you know, if they rated somebody at pick 20, they won't bid at pick nine because then there's always a risk that the team, they have the choice of not matching (laughs) the bid. So there's a risk that the player ends up on your team as well. Sort of like if you're giving, you know, like like you give Ennis Cantor a max contract and restricted free agency and oh I guess Alan Crab was was the player. It's like oh yeah go ahead if you want <laughs> if you want him for that sure like yeah good like you know I, a, a blessing on both of your houses kind of situation yeah exactly um, what so now we're just you you have completely blown my mind so what like proportion of players coming in are kind of subject to this sort of I don't know, would you call it like restricted draft agency or something? Yeah, so it was really interesting. So normally you'd have about, uh, you know, that'd be about, so our drafts normally go for about uh, pick 60 or 70, 70 or 60 or 70 picks on average. And normally there's about you know, five to 10, but it's really interesting. In 2020, um, in the first round, so there's 18 teams, on the first 18 picks, I think 50% of those 18 were, um, academy players or had some type of connection and in fact um, two of the top five picks uh, were academy selections and attached to another team we actually had pick one that year 
um, and we bid on another team's player with pick one, uh, which they matched. Um, but that was the first time that's ever been done in history. So it was, um, yeah, it was fascinating. And and there's just no and and there's no the no additional compensation for you. You just like, well, I guess we we go with our number two pick then. Exactly. Yep. That was uh, that's how it worked that day. And then last year, I think the uh, pick three. Uh, was attached to the same team, so they've been they've been unbelievably lucky. They've been quite a strong team, but in 2020 they had uh, you know the guy that got bid on at pick one, and then in 2021 they had the guy that was bid on uh, with pick pick three. So they've had uh, a really good run at it. Uh, that uh, I guess that's a way of encouraging teams to have have strong sort of academy systems. Well, yeah, I mean, this guy, so the first one was an academy uh, selection, and then the second was the son of a, uh, a legend of the club. Sure, that, 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 I get that. Um, so uh, now having, like, completely, like, scattered my brains uh, talking about, like, just some of the weird structural stuff, um, I want to come a little closer to home and just and talk more about, like, the kinds of things one can do to to analyze AFL, like in, in on field, which is probably a little more familiar, like not having to do, deal with all these, this, all these unknowns of, of, you know, cap <laughs> values and stuff like that. Um, what is, okay. I mean, I think we, we can see in this NBA playoffs and it's talked about all the time, like it, by and large basketball in the NBA is a strong link sport where, okay, you, your, your ceiling is sort of defined by your best player. Um, other sports, notably, I think soccer, are more weak link sports where your your ceiling is you know you're limited by your worst players. Uh, where would you say AFL kind of falls in in on that spectrum? Yeah, I think AFL is more a weak link sport, just like soccer. So we have 18 on the field at any given time, um, and it's really hard, like really hard for one player to have the level of influence as um, one NBA player would. So. Um, it's important to have the right amount of star players and elite talented players as well, but you really need that strong base to build from. Are there, is there a wide range in sort of position value? Are, are top scores, you know, worth, worth, I don't know if exponentially more, but in terms of, of, you know, standings, basically, are, 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 are those players just worth a ton more or is there kind of, influence and value to be had all over the field um yeah so there is there's um without giving too much away for how we look at it <laughs> sure. there is of course a lot of yeah um around the ground that there's value but um if you just look at it from what kind of salaries are projected and who wins um you know a lot of the end of season awards like it's your midfielders and your uh, big key forwards that do get a lot of the praise and um there is a lot of value in having uh, really good midfielders and really good forwards but um, you know, the last team that won the premiership um, in 2021, Melbourne, they um, they traded for two really, really talented key defenders from other clubs and they gave up a lot in draft equity to get that and um, that's held them in good stead. So there's different ways to skin the cat in the AFL, which, um, which makes it fun because you can look for an advantage um, where other people might not be looking. And that seems, I mean, that's sort of like Moneyball 101 is if, okay, I instantly go to, well, if these players get the big salaries and all the end of season awards, but if that perhaps over, and, I, and don't answer this question because, you know, it's a, 
it is proprietary, I'm sure. But if if those sort of uh, public uh, things overstate their actual value, there's obviously some uh, there, there's some gains, some efficiencies to be had. There's there's uh, there's there, there's uh, you know Scott Hatterberg's that you could have at other positions where no no one's maybe looked at them, but they're just as impactful for far less resource expenditure. That's the goal, at least, right? Yeah. Is, to, is to find those. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's the fun part. So in terms of, of data, what kinds of, like, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in the NBA in terms of the just, you know, this is year eight of, of kind of full in arena tracking. And I, I, I'm sure you're aware, being familiar with basketball, it's been legitimately an exponential increase in just what we know about how NBA basketball is played and what, what's effective. Um, what kinds of what kinds of data? What kinds of tools? What kinds of inputs can you use to kind of, you know, obviously anyone can see. Well, this player has you know seventeen goals in this many minutes, so therefore, but yeah, what kinds of data are there to to you know get deeper than that? Yeah, so it's really um, that's a good question. So there's a league wide data provider, and then you can kind of pay for different levels of. Uh, the quality of data you get. So we've got the, um, I suppose, like the premium package that involves a lot of transactional data. So that's um, like play-by-play stuff that um, takes it, you know, to the next level of where players um, receive possession, how they received it, what happened, like the outcomes, where the defenders were, um, and all those things. And what you can do from that is like you can build out different chains of possession, what leads to goals, and really identify what leads to scores and what leads to score prevention and again like um the data scientist i mentioned who's yeah he's a star he um he does a lot of great stuff with that and provides a lot of great insights for our coaching and our coaching analysis team um and the other things that are really great is we've got um i think australia leads the way in gps and um that type of uh, data the sports science side of things so especially for draft picks that come in and guys currently in the system like our sports science team gets a really good um, picture of what somebody's running profile is, what their athletic profile is, and can like project out what players' athletic profiles are, and then can also identify any issues in, um, you know, somebody's fitness or something that needs to be addressed. So we've done a real, a, like a lot of work with the GPS stuff um, in terms. Of, I think just Australia as a country, and that's why you see a lot of NBA and NFL teams hiring Australian sports scientists. Um, I think there was actually one in Milwaukee when you were yeah. there, Seth. Yeah, and, um, uh, shout out to Dr. Troy Flanagan, who is still the, uh, I think his, I think his title is head of performance, but he and um, several members of his team are all Australian. So, and and yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting because I mean we we discussed this a number of times, and it was uh, like Australia was very forward in the use of kind of science and data on the you know the science, the medical, the injury prevention side, and the U.S. is sort of kept trying to catch up on that. Where, but, uh, but Australia is just sort of getting into sort of the, the use of data in sort of match analysis and player evaluation, and that's that's yep. where a lot of the that's sort of where we started first in baseball and then basketball and now other sports. Yeah, exactly. I think that's fair. <clears throat> um, but it's really interesting. I think like, um, and you know this better than I. There's like such a wide range of uh, teams in the US that do use it, and some teams that don't, and it's really dispersed whereas in australia i think everyone's there's obviously 
a disparity, but teams tend to be tracking along together. Like every team's invest, trying to be invested in it and um, doing different things. And everyone's on the journey. Whereas in the US, it seems like, you know, it's really divided with the teams that are still the believers and the teams that, you know, still probably just do it for the sake of doing it without really investing much time or resource into it. I wonder if that's a function of, of if you're doing it sort of from a health and safety angle, even though there are like competitive mm. advantages there, there is, there, there, there maybe is some, uh, you know, on some level, like we all want the players to be healthy and injuries suck and stuff like that. So uh, maybe there's more, it, it's easier to be cooperative in that. Whereas, you know, going the other way, going the, you know, how many runs does this, does this pitcher save above average? Um, that's, that's a strictly competitive advantage. And, you know, I, I hope you stay dumb is, is my, yeah. is sort of, I, I mean, that, I mean, does that, do you think there's some of that or is it just, you know, a difference in sporting cultures? No, I think so. And I think, um, like you're right, like the sports science guys, um, that I've dealt with, they're all great and they're all really <clears throat> interested in like the next aspect of it. So like, um, the GPS stuff is great. So I think they probably, you know, at clubs that wouldn't, necessarily have had like a data scientist like we do or anything like that they would drive that conversation with the key decision makers and then get them to invest in it um and because they're so good at what they do they do hold a fair bit of power at football clubs i think you're right like the health and safety aspect of it does drive it and those key individuals in that space drive it it and it does i mean anecdotally it does seem like like afl is um has been more forward in, in for example, stuff uh, like more forward-looking in stuff like concussions than, I don't know, the NFL. Um, high bar, yeah. I know. That, it's a high bar to clear. <laughs> they've, they've managed. So, it, 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 so it's like this. So how do we prevent this rather than how do we pretend the problem doesn't exist? Yeah, there's a lot of care um, around the player safety and I think the AFL does a really good job of understanding that, you know, the players are the lifeblood of the game, so we need to protect them, um, you know, while they're playing and after that. So, yeah, they they put a lot of time into preventing concussions and uh, supporting players through that. And they've got, a, like, a lot of good rules around um, medical substitutes and things like that and preventing you to play. Um, they've done that for years. Interesting. Um yeah, I don't, I, like I'm not even sure what else to ask about. You know, a, a, analyzing. Um, is there anything you can share about like what the most sort of interesting thing you found that either was completely new to you or completely contradicted something you knew about like what was important about about? Yeah, you know. I think one thing, and it's kind of changed the way a lot of people think about it. Um, but it's something we identified pretty early on that was interesting it's actually not about uh, so we have it's a pretty big ground and um the forward 50 is like the 50 meter arc where um you know you try to go forward and uh, kick goals like a lot of time and effort was spent into forward 50 entry so how you deliver the ball inside and um you know making sure that entry is perfect and just among different teams that i'd spoken to and just how the conversation was but then um one thing we realise and now the competition's realising is that it's actually more important um, how long you can keep the ball inside your forward 50. Um, so the actual entry doesn't matter as much. Obviously, you don't want to kick it straight to the opposition, but 
Um, if you have the players that have the ability to keep the ball inside 50 with pressure, tackling, um, all that, that really is more indicative of success than forward 50 entry. So that's something that, um, yeah, now teams are focusing on with the different types of players they recruit in their forward line and the different skill sets they're looking for. And, um, yeah, that's been a really interesting shift in the way the game's going and the different um, recruitment strategies that teams employ. So, yeah, that's probably a quick answer for something that was quite, uh, yeah, interesting to dive into. That's, I mean, that's that's interesting because that sounds a whole lot like what's sort of happened in in top level soccer in the last yeah. I don't know half half decade with the with you know the top teams really really focusing on high press and 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 you know the people realizing that that forwards who can press who don't necessarily score a lot of goals are actually like the Roberto Firminos of the world are actually uh, quite useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's I mean that's. Um, I mean that's one of those things that that it's 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 much like you know the three point revolution in basketball. It's like oh well, get closer, the shot's easier. It's like well, how easy, much easier is it? And before you have data, it's just sort of, well, I think it's easier, and I think it's enough easier <laughs> that we should take that instead of the other one. But then once you can actually get the get the that detailed information studied, you realize what matters and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. That. Um... I don't know if there will ever be anything, well, definitely not in the AFL, that was as revolutionary as the three-point revolution. Um, but, yeah, that, that's been fascinating to watch. And you've lived it, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, it's possible, but it's also possible that that sort of thing already happened. Like, it, it's sort of so foundational that, that like, a big shift like that wouldn't even register now because, you know, there's often... Yeah, I, I've, I've. It seems to me that in that in most sports, there's like a, a way people think the game should be played, and then someone figures something else out. Another thing works so yeah. well that everyone's like, "No, we should do that now." I mean, it's you know another example from basketball is you know, oh, the jump shot is good. People should shoot jump shots instead of this like one foot set shot thing that takes three seconds to get off, and then you know. <laughs> And it's like once the first person figured that out, that's all anyone did, and and now it's like you can't even you can't even conceive of a game of basketball without it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So, we've talked a lot about like kind of your your uh, your, your home sport, but you're also I mean you've been you're you've been an, an sort of an avid NBA fan for a long time, and have, have kind of uh, am I giving anything away by saying that you've sort of had sort of cross sport discussions with with basketball teams in the US to you know since there's things we can learn yeah no I don't think so so like um, me and my uh, my boss we actually we came over in 2019 for the Sloan analytics conference and met with a lot of um, NBA and NFL teams uh, and it was just really great to um, yeah see what they were doing see what we were doing and seeing the crossover seeing how we could help how they helped us with ideas and then i'm actually moving to the u.s um for the next couple of years in july i'm going to be doing my mba at duke so um you know in that process i've had some conversations with just some mba teams um about again like just where the afl is and what they can learn from us and um yeah a lot of it has in my conversations have been that um there's been a lot of interest in the way that we communicate with our players and how all our data and all our processes are quite 
streamlined and quite um, it's quite an open book in the AFL amongst the different departments and um, the discussions that go ahead and how that leads to better decisions. So just in terms of like the draft, like the conversations we have with the psychologists, with our sports science team, with our coaches, our scouts, um, and just our data guys, obviously, like it really brings together a whole package. And we get more access to players before a draft than the NBA guys do. Um, but I think, you know, they were fascinated by that, like how we use the psych testing to um, help inform our decisions and things like that. No, that I've, I've heard that from, I've heard that from, from basketball people that that's that like the, the sort of the level of, of integration and cooperation and how, so it's, it's all sort of, it's maybe different disciplines, but not necessarily like silos is, is, is really impressed people in terms of, you know, in, in the, the, one of the big challenges, if you went to, if you went to Sloan, you probably heard this conversation because it's been the, been a conversation at Sloan every year that they've actually talked about sports at Sloan, which is, well, how do we get these people to talk to those people? Uh, and, and yeah. again, I've heard from, you know, a number, a number of like basketball people who've, who've, who've kind of looked into this that, wow, they actually do that really well. We need to figure out how to do that as well. Um, yeah. Do you think, yeah. do you, do you think that's a that's uh, my understanding is that the staffs are a little bit smaller? Is that it, or is there something just about the the structure of clubs that encourages that, or is it just something that people have yeah. figured out there for whatever reason? I think it's um, so each club's different. Like I think the amount of staff maybe in the front office is a little bit smaller, but then on the coaching side um, and the sports science side, just because we have so many more players. Um, it's probably bigger than many NBA coaching staff. Um, but I think one thing that obviously helps in the AFL is we only play once a week, a bit like the NFL, uh, whereas the NBA, you know, they might be playing three or four games a week. So there's, I've heard that that's a big pain point for people in NBA teams, like just not having that time to really uh, <laughs> review a game and access, you know, access to the players and the coaches. So that definitely hurts. But I also think it's also understanding um, that and uh, some NBA teams do this really well. Some don't. Is that uh, from my from who I've spoken to? It's like really understanding that we're bringing players in for the club, and everybody should have that kind of some level of input. Not not in terms of if they can play or not, but should have some input into their area of expertise. So like you know, we might have a a really great draft prospect, and the psychologist might raise some red flags, and you know you've got to value that opinion because the psychologist is going to be dealing with that player uh, on a day-to-day basis. So if you're going to make their life harder, then it becomes difficult <laughs> to have that club unity. So it's um, it's really interesting how that process works. And then you've just got to, I suppose, because there's less transactions in, in the NBA, like you really see each player you bring in as like a long-term investment. So the whole club needs to be invested in that player. And that really helps to have that long-term continuity where um, – you know, even if you have a change of coach or a change of GM, like there's enough people at the club that are familiar with all the players that they can then give that, um, give the right appraisals to those people. So you don't really lose that uh, continuity. Whereas in the NBA, I can see like from my um, you know, reading of it and speaking to people is when there's a new staff that comes in, like there are a lot of players that get shifted around and things like that. And you really start to lose, um, you know, that team bond and the continuity that you might have had. There's yeah. You, if there's a change in leadership, whether it's coaching or 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 or, or lead decision maker, 
um, the amount of retained corporate knowledge tends to be pretty low, which always has struck mm-hmm. me as silly. Um, it, it was funny you, you, when you mentioned like, you know, not wanting to make the psychologist life harder. That reminds me of, of, I won't, I won't name the player, but, uh, one of the, one of when I was in Milwaukee, there was a very talented player, like enormous injury, like risk flags. And, and he got selected not right before us, but before us in the draft. And it's like someone we like our medical team was like, please don't. Uh, and then he got picked ahead of us and you could hear like, you, you know, there's the, 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 like the front office was in run room and like the medical team was in another room because they weren't like directly like on the phones and stuff like that. Like they're eating pizza or something. And when they announced his, this, this player's name getting picked, you could hear the loudest cheer since he got, he got picked before us and they didn't. And so it's like, thank goodness we don't have to. Um, so that I, I can, I, I think that, uh, that they that they certainly could relate to the idea of not not wanting to, you know, the headache. But at a, you know, at the same time, like at some point, the juice is worth the squeeze. And, but it's, exactly, it's a matter of of making sure. I would imagine making sure that everyone feels like okay, they considered this opinion, and the weight of everything was that we're, we're taking him anyway, which is tough for me, but good for the team overall. Yeah, exactly. And you'd have those conversations like. You know, if somebody does raise a flag, you say, okay, well, but if this player gets outside of pick 40, the talent's too good. Um, we have to take it. And I, I imagine that that's, you, there has to be a, uh, it's not just something you can make stick if like, okay, well, we're doing draft and we listen to you, now go away. It kind of has to be. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> it has to be something that, there has to be a foundation for that to work. Yeah, and there's got to be that culture of trust that, um, well, at, at the Crows, I think we've got that. Um, everyone trusts each other um, with the decisions and um, there's no backstabbing or no blaming. Like if we get one right, everyone gets it right. If we get one wrong, we all got it wrong kind of thing. That's healthy. Um, if, flipping it around, what are, from your conversations, what would you say there are some things that uh, that, that the AFL and could learn from, from the way that uh, – I mean, there's two very different styles of organization, like NBA and NFL. Mm. But but what would you say if there's there's a couple things from each that you you like? Hmm, I wonder how we could apply that. Yeah, I think you guys do a really good job, um, probably across both leagues, of identifying when you think somebody's probably not going to make it and cutting that cord um, a little bit easier, quicker <laughs> than across the AFL. Everyone's probably we're, we're um, meaner. Hangs on. <laughs> yeah, um, everyone hangs on with the hope that oh, okay, we think we might he might get there or. Um, you know, if he does X, Y, and Z, then he could probably get there. Whereas um, you guys are pretty ruthless. Also, if you think that there's a player that's not going to make it, um, you know, you guys move on from that player, both the NBA and the NFL. Whereas in the AFL, um, you probably hang on for a bit too long and try to say, you know, hope that this player can make it and try to put things in place. Um, again, then that's because of the less transactional nature of the AFL. They probably have to do that. And then the other thing is the way you guys view players is probably in terms of salary rather than draft pick equity. So if you were to trade a player in or trade a player out, um, you'd really consider that salary cap value, um, whereas we consider the draft pick value of each player. Again, that's a function of not having those salaries transparent. But I think, it, um, yeah, it's really interesting with cap management and things like that. Um, I think you can get some firmer rules in place in the AFL, whereas... Um, yeah, in the NBA, I think you guys have got that uh, down pat. 
is there i mean does the does the the trade being talked of in terms of pick value does that mean that is, is there any sort of sunk costs thing well we used we used the number 3 pick on on this player so we need to get like if we if we end up if we end up trading him we need to get you know close to that back in return or is is you know by the time you're thinking of of doing that is it easy to to sort of Okay, well, this is what this is what the pick we used on him, but that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I think especially when negotiating um, with other teams, I think a lot of teams use that as a line in the sand, um, especially if the player is playing really well. Like you know, this guy was a pick six draft pick; he's going really well. Um, because of that, we need to get at least that value back or whatever. Like teams do use that pick number um, as a line in the sand, and then obviously the performance after that. So. There's some interesting discussions that take place sometimes at the trade table around when players were drafted and how relevant or irrelevant that is. Um, I think it really depends in what shoes you're in, yeah. uh, if you want to use that as I mean, a guide or not. So, But, yeah, that can lead to some frustrations at trade time, definitely. I mean, the, the correct answer of how relevant is that is, is none. But, you know, he's, it's the, that, 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 that already happened. And, you know, I guess maybe, like, early in a player's career, you know, maybe that that draft selection like can be seen as some sort of indicator of potential. But it seems to me that once a player, yeah, exactly. you know, th- three four years into their career, it's like okay, well, he was picked at spot six, and either that was a good or bad decision. Um, but it, it's not doesn't matter anymore whether like whether it was. Um, switching gears completely, I, I you know we kept you for we, we've been talking for about uh, forty minutes or so. Want to get you out of here in ten or fifteen? Um, I wanted to spend about half of our time talking NBA, but we've you, we've used more than half of it um, addressing my ignorance of the AFL. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I, I assume you've been following the playoffs uh, uh, pretty closely uh, to the yeah, extent that, that the time zone allows. Yeah, it's um, no. There's been fascinating these playoffs. Really, really interesting. What uh, you know. I, Kind of let let you lead the discussion here. What uh, what has stood out to you? Yeah, I think the one thing that is really interesting, something that um, just an interesting thought exercise that I kind of thought about. I think it was a 2017 playoffs that the Thunder that is it 2017 or 2016 where the Thun, uh, Thunder had a three one lead against the Warriors, um, and then they blew that. That's when it kind of became an interesting thing that I was thinking about when it came to the NBA and now with the Celtics team, just the size that those two teams have um, across every position, they just seem much bigger than all of their opponents were and just the benefit uh, to those teams defensively. um, How much do you think that really impacts? And do you think teams will be going forward, will be really analysing that? Like just the ability for every Celtic to um, cover gaps on the floor and um, do those things. Like I think that there's a benefit for that, especially when the games become a lot tighter in the playoffs and the pressure is higher. Like just having that size advantage, there might be something to it. Yeah, no, this is something that I've that I've been, I think I've been a drum I've been banging on for a couple of years. I'm not sure it's like size so much as like height and wingspan, but I think it's size in terms of like a a physicality and a sturdiness. And you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about you know. Like Marcus Smart, like does have good wingspan, but he's also like he's compact and strong, and so if he up matched up against you know a much larger player battling for a rebound, he's at a disadvantage, but it's not like a walkover. 
and mm-hmm. and you know there's so many spots on the floor where you see having five guys on the floor who are physically robust and they don't even need to be like big huge guys like i think this is an underrated aspect of kevin durant's game is that he yeah. is able to to battle with larger players uh credibly even if he's giving up a lot of weight um well, larger in terms of like like width not necessarily height of course um yeah. um but so I I do think that you know the, that sort of that that strength and athleticism to be able to as you say like gaps and just like not get not get pushed around for for lack of a better yes. term I think that becomes that that is that is at, definitely at a premium in the playoffs and I think it's you know I think the players who we see kind of step up and and be like big factors in the playoffs. I mean, you look at the, at the bucks last year, I mean, PJ Tucker and Pat Connaughton were both, you know, neither of them are, are huge, but they're both strong. And and certainly in in Connaughton's case, very athletic. And so that just allowed them to do stuff. Allowed them like, just, you know, these are tight games or or not this year. They've been mostly blowouts, but, but sometimes tight games and like, sometimes it comes down to neither team can make a shot which team gets more shots and it's, it becomes yeah. a volume rather than an efficiency thing. And so having, you know, having a guy who can swoop in and grab an offensive rebound, it, it probably matters. So yeah, no, that's, I think that's so long winded way of saying, I think that's been a thing for a number of years. And I think that's, you know, when teams are talking about small ball, I think that's almost a misnomer because the teams that are successful with small ball aren't the teams that have a bunch of like skinny six, one guys running around. Yeah, exactly. Like if you look at the, you know, the death lineup warriors, I mean, those are some, you know, Andre Iguodala, Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson. Those are some, 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 some strong dudes. And like Steph is like, if it like, this is something that maybe you have to see him in person to, to, to realize, but, but Steph is a lot bigger than like, than, you know, than the perception of him is too. So even he's mm-hmm. able to 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 be to play with some I don't know, not necessarily play with force but not get overwhelmed by force as much as as sort of you know you think he's he's like uh, Trey Young side thing like that yeah yeah no exactly yeah I think it's just really interesting like um, the way and I don't know if when basketball um, teams draft or when they look to acquire someone in trade like. Do they think about is this a playoff player? Is this regardless of where they are on their rebuild journey or anything like that? Like, is that a consideration? Like, and what stacks up in the playoffs? Because that's at the end of the day, that's what everyone should be working towards, right? I mean, that's a fascinating question. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's uh, you know it's the eighty-two game versus sixteen game players, which you know I mm-hmm. is. I think that might be slight, slightly reductive, but I do think it is a good frame. I like even that. I almost think it's like twelve game players. It's like second round or later of the playoffs. Um, yeah, it's almost. Um, I think for some teams that kind of doesn't matter. Like you know, if you're if you're Orlando, you need to get to forty five fifty wins before you even care about that. So, um, what well, would be nice if if some of your guys. Um, unless the guy is like your tentpole superstar, in which case he's probably going to be fine in that mm-hmm. chance. Um, 
how likely is it that any guy you draft is actually going to be a key part of your team when you get there? Or is he someone who's going to, you know, most of the good case scenarios going to help you? Does it, I don't um, know why it's always, it's always the magic I pick on in this example. Someone who's going to help you get to that like 45, 50 level. And then maybe you need to improve further to get beyond that. Do you think, um, and it's hard, like with the talent disparity of drafts and things like that, but do you think there's um, probably an underappreciation in the NBA for players with high leadership potential and players, and those players that, I don't like, I don't, because this word is being overused, but like the grit level where a player can, that's where like those teams, even though those players are probably those good 16 game players, like you say, they will also help a team in the dog days of January when they are, you know, they've won 15 games and they're the types of players that you want to be able to carry you. Um, do teams evaluate that enough? Like even the rebuilding teams that might not need those players for the playoffs, but they do need that leadership level to help accelerate the, the rebuild. And it might be you bring these guys in to help develop the mindset of the young guys and um, do those types of things. Do teams look at that enough in your opinion? I think it's so. This this is there's several levels to that. First of all, like like culture is like a super overused word, even though Great. it is like massively important. Um, the 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 thing is, is well, our team culture, like like no, there's probably about you know five teams that have a culture that is like you know a plus factor for them, and you know twenty teams where it's kind of even, and five teams that suck. In, in their culture. So, but everyone talks about, you know, our strong team culture and it's largely, you know, bullshit that everyone says. Um, when that sort of carries over a little bit, because yes, everyone thinks this is important. I don't think anyone's particularly good at identifying it. I mean, you know, there's the, you, you would, is sort of a, a perception that the player that you think is going to be good for that is just like glass chewing kind of super intense, um, but like one of the best, like great culture guy, great culture guys on the Bucks, and I can speak from a little bit of experience. Like, okay, Giannis is that, but Chris Middleton, mm-hmm. Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez are not. Like, they're all very hard workers, but they're, but they're, but they're not like, you know, they're not like the the MJ maniacal, super like you know about everything. Like they're all very competitive, but it's so it's. It's you know because you get the, like players get dinged in, in in by times in the draft by you know if they have other interests and this happens I think you see this more in football almost it's like does he really love mm-hmm. football if he if he also plays the guitar it's like yeah. well he he's a he's a, he's a human being who can do multiple things so no that doesn't track but but there but I think we over-index on sort of the Sort of like in de- on on defense, we kind of over-index on the player we see running around doing stuff. I think we over-index on traits that, yes, they could be grit, they could be leadership, but they could also just be a player being an asshole. So, <laughs> so I think that, and it's 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 funny because these sort of um, these these uh, quote unquote intangibles, um, how you interpret them is is completely like. I found that if you if you like a player's game, these intangibles are always positive, and if you don't like a player's game, yeah. they're always negative. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 so. 
like I, I guess it's a, not really answering. Like teams value it, they just aren't very good at valuing it because it's it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's oh, it's yeah, it's really difficult. That's and that's one of those challenges where um, it's really helpful when you do have that whole organizational buy-in, so you can have those conversations with your you know, the team psychologist and like we've done some modeling around um, psychology and it's um oh it's, it's fascinating I, I find that space really interesting um just on how to how those types of players and it's probably more relevant um to what we've done like we've undertaken a pretty aggressive rebuild in the last uh, couple of years so like these are the questions that you know we're constantly asking ourselves and um you know you look at the nba like there are teams that have been um, bad for so long and you just wonder like do they think about these things and or think about them differently or have they thought about it and they realize actually there is no impact like the only impact and I, I i don't believe this would be the case but they might think the only impact is getting star players and things like that but um i find that hard to believe but like yeah those are the questions that fascinate me I, so there's been there's been some public studies on this um, going back five or ten years. Like people have done kind of like natural language uh, uh, <laughs> of, of scouting reports, and the most interesting yeah. one I saw was like an examination of like you know is there any predictive power in sort of the the character assessments or or he's a worker or stuff like that. And basically, what uh, a study was done by Andrew Johnson, who used to write it at, at Nylon Calculus. Um, and it was basically what he found is like there's no nothing that is like a positive predictor, but things that are like extreme red flags are 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 pretty predictive negative indicators. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know either a guy like it's it's either the the like it's okay and doesn't there's no there's no extra information in him being a great character guy or basically unless it's Demarcus Cousins. Um, like the, yeah. the, the, the red flag players, like all like kind of washed out of the league quickly. Um, yeah. it was sort of the, was sort of the, the, uh, the results of, of the study he did. Um, so, which I thought is interesting. Um, it's like you, you sort of, you, once you clear a certain bar, like nobody knows and we'll, we'll figure it out <laughs> is almost, yeah. is almost what that, that indicates. But it seems like from what you're saying that because of the additional access, you can almost, you can do better with the integration of, of kind of your, your psychologists and your, your background work um, over there. Yeah. I don't know if it's doing better or it's just like, we can really, um, we have the advantage, I suppose, of diving into it, but it could be a red herring. Like we could be diving into this thing and it's irrelevant, but um yeah, at the moment we haven't come to that conclusion just yet, but we're um, yeah, it's a fascinating point of discussion um, amongst everyone at the club, just around rebuilds and around the quality of uh, the qualities that we really need to look for um, amongst players. I mean, I think there's 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 lit, there's no question that it's something that is important, and it's one of those things that you can you can fall into the trap of, oh well well we can't measure this well, therefore it's unimportant. And exactly, you know, um, it's like we, I think we should start from a standpoint that, OK, this is a group of, of people who spend a lot of time over this course of the season together. So them like being able to coexist probably matters, at least on yeah. some level. Yeah. It's um, 
it's really another thing that um, I constantly think about as well, which uh, could be a factor in the NBA, is at what point is your locker room uh, ready to bring in a player that's high talent, low character, and somebody that might actually be like to the further extent of low character might be a disruptive influence. Like, at what point are you guys ready for that? Uh, for it not to blow up the whole team? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's something we 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 go back and forth with all the time. I mean, there's sort of a there's sort of an informal rule of thumb that it's like the one knucklehead rule, where <laughs> it's like you can sort of contain and 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 you know manage and bring one guy in, but if there's like multiple, then they kind of bounce off each other and drag other people in, and and then that's when you sort of that that's when when things become problematic. Although I mean, obviously there are levels of it. Like, yeah. There are some players who would like almost doesn't matter how talented they are, they might play in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> it just, um, yeah, and the, or there's players who you know, given the wrong circumstances, will be a mess. But you know, if things are going well, they'll be fine. So it's yeah. it's, it's, it's it's a spectrum rather than a binary. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anything else you wanna you wanna hit on before? I know it's. Uh, I, I appreciate you uh, taking some time in your morning. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 it, this is always weird to me. It's Thursday evening here, Friday morning there. I'm, I'm exactly yeah. I'm, so we've I'm got podcasting the, um, from the future. Uh, <laughs> we've got the Warriors game in another hour or so. I think yeah, um, yeah. Which might be the end of that series. Yeah. Is that uh, you, no, you? You think it's you think it's uh, Warriors Celtics in the finals? I think so, yeah. Um, I think it's going to be – that's a really fascinating series. Who would you pick in that? Um, the big caveat of they have some important players kind of with, with you know, carrying some injuries, I think the Celtics are better. Um, but I think mm-hmm. between the, the sort of the injuries and I think Golden State's top players, again, we talked earlier about corporate knowledge. This would be Golden yep. State's six finals in eight years. Um I, I, it's one of those things that I, and I've, I've told this story on this pod or, or made this point on this pod multiple times before. It's one of those things that I thought was BS until like my, my third year with the Bucks, we'd, you know, gone out in the first round, the first two years, third year, we make the conference finals and we play a Raptors team that has kind of been to the conference finals, been to the second round and kind of seen it. And they just knew stuff about that we didn't. Even though we like yeah. we knew, okay, this is being up. It's like we just didn't. It was our first time, like you know, being deep in the play. It's just different. Um, now the Celtics team yeah. has 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 gotten you know deep in the playoffs a couple times you know before, so it's not you know it's not completely foreign to them. But I do you do you have to say that's a little bit of an advantage, Warriors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And there's just so many things that come about. Being in the finals or any um, Super Bowl grand final, whatever you call it, there's just yeah. the media scrutiny and all the extra time that the players need to give up. That um, yeah. yeah, that's where the Warriors' yeah. experience will be invaluable. Yeah. And the other, I mean, and the other matchup thing is like you know the tendency that Boston has for like one out of every eight quarters to completely forget how to play basketball. Um, <laughs> you know, the Heat have have punished that some. The Bucks were able to punish that some. The Warriors will. Des- the Warriors are a team that will destroy you if you have those. Like if if you bad offense against the Warriors is it means 
if you have two minutes of bad offense against the Warriors, that probably means you gave up a 10 0 run and the game could be over. So like this, that's been one, one of the hallmarks of like this, this Warriors kind of ep the epoch is, is, you know, their ability to just quickly hang a bunch of points on you when you kind of lose focus for a little bit. And, you know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have, you know, we saw it in the first half yesterday, last night, they, couldn't hang on to the ball and like Miami couldn't really punish them for it. Like they were behind, but they were in the game. If they do that mm-hmm. they're half like that against golden state, they'll be down 25. Yeah. 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 No, that's um, fascinating. I, I'm looking forward to that matchup. Yeah. So, uh, uh, if I made you make a pick, who would it be? <laughs> yeah. In saying that, that, um, I was gonna, I'll probably still stick with the Celtics. I think, um, just the what we discussed, just that, and I know the Warriors are not as small as people think. I just think there's something to, and if, if obviously Robert Williams and Smart can be healthy, um, they might be able to overwhelm them with their defense, and then um, it comes down to Tatum and Brown, really. Yeah, I, I, I think that's where I am too, um, but we'll see. Um, yeah. Well, I I appreciate you, uh, you you taking the time to do this and and kind of being flexible with the multiple rescheduling and uh, um, maybe we'll uh, hopefully we can chat again once you're uh, back over these parts in your uh, in your program and and uh, and and catch up again in a couple months. No, thank you, mate. I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah. yeah, it's great to chat. It's just like an extended phone call that we've had before, which um, which I love. Well, that's, I mean, that's the fun thing. Like, that's basically what, uh, when, when Colin asked me to, to like, like, do a show for them, they were, that's basically what they said they wanted was, hey, you talk to these people, just record it. <laughs> yeah. So, <that's, laughs> so uh, thank Perfect. you for, thank you, thank you for the chat and, uh, and, and talk soon. No worries. Thanks, sir. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Man. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll uh, we'll be back next week with guests TBD. Take care and talk to you then.